0: Section twenty nine of Tom Petrie's Reminiscences of Early Queensland. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tom Petrie's Reminiscences of Early Queensland, Part Two, Chapter Five it has of course been recorded how in eighteen thirty eight mister andrew petrie got lost in the bush with the then new commandant major cotton they went out on a visit of inspection to limestone accompanied by dr alexander the medical officer to the twenty eighth regiment an orderly and a convict attendant travelling up by boat they reached limestone ipswich without event and on the return trip Mr. Petrie suggested to the commandant that they should journey through the bush to Red Bank to see the sheep-station formed there. This was done, and on the way some new specimens of timber were discovered by my grandfather, whose taste for exploring was therefore aroused, and he again proposed the lengthening of the trip. This time it was to Oxley Creek, where convict sawyers were at work. All went well until, after leaving the latter place, the party got bushed in the thick forest in an attempt to come out on the river, where they had instructed the boat to wait for them. The boat did wait, and waited till her occupants grew weary, then went on to the settlement to report the new turn events had taken, and search parties were sent out. In the meantime, the lost sheep wandered about for a couple of days and nights, then, on the third day, coming to a mountain, Mr. Petrie ascended it, hoping to be able to see then where they were. He was successful, and they managed after that to find their way to the river, coming out near the present Lytton. Here my grandfather—he could not swim—proceeded to make a raft of dry logs to cross the river, but, while in the midst of this, one of the search parties with a black tracker came up. And immediately after a boat belonging to the government happened to pass, which took the exhausted party back to the settlement. A good deal of excitement was caused over this event, for it was thought that the travelers had met with Logan's fate guns being fired and black trackers employed for so long, all without result. The search party which had come up with the lost ones while the raft was being made told them how the black men, Tallingalini, had followed their tracks. He seemed to know grandfathers from the others, and once coming on a certain place called, "Look here, Mr. Petribin, stand and shoot bird," and proceeded to show the way that gentleman had fired off the gun, standing with it to his left shoulder. Mr. Petrie always held the gun so, but was nevertheless a good shot. He thought it wonderful how the black man had noticed, for it was quite true he had shot a swamp pheasant at the place described. Tom often heard his father speak of this time afterwards, saying how strange it was that the tracker should know the position in which he stood, and declaring that the swamp pheasant was very sweet, but hardly a mouthful among them all. They were tired, and very hungry. The hill from which Mr. Petrie found his bearings as regards the Brisbane River was afterwards called Mount Petrie, a name it still is known by with reference to this some years ago the brisbane courier contained the following mr thorne drew the attention of the Belmont board at wednesday's meeting to the fact that there was a tree lying on the summit of mount petrie mr proud's property which bore a relic of the early days the tree had a scarf cut out and in its place there was carved the name a petrie eighteen thirty eight This was the father of Mr. T. Petrie of North Pine, and the grandfather of the present member for Tumbull. Mr. Thorne thought the relic ought to be in the museum, and for this purpose moved that Mr. Prout be written to asking permission to cut and remove the portion of the tree referred to. Mr. Lees seconded the motion which was unanimously agreed to. A trigonometrical station was built on Mount Petrie, and Mr. Andrew Petrie's tree was cut down to make room for the beacon. In 1896, when the board sought the tree, it had just been burnt by bushfires. The writer is indebted to Mr. Lees for a rough sketch of the tree while standing. In Mr. Andrew Petrie's explorations he found many new specimens of timber. Says Dr. Lang, on page 135 of his book Cook's Lund, I shall enumerate a few of the more important species of the timber of Morton Bay, with notanda, illustrative of the qualities, localities, and uses for which I am indebted in great measure to Mr. Andrew Petrie, the able and intelligent superintendent of government works at Morton Bay, while that part of the territory was a penal settlement. Dr. Lang speaks first of the Araucaria cunninghami, or the Morton Bay pine. HE ENDS HIS DESCRIPTION BY SAYING, THERE ARE TWO VARIETIES OF THIS PINE, THAT OF THE MOUNTAIN AND THAT OF THE PLAINS OR alluvial FLATS ON THE BANKS OF RIVERS. OF THE FORMER OF THESE VARIETIES, MR. Petrie, WHO FIRST OBSERVED ITS SUPERIOR QUALITIES, STATES THAT IT IS LITTLE INFERIOR TO THE BUNYA BUNYA PINE. IT IS WELL ADAPTED FOR MASTS AND SPARS, AND GROWS NEARLY AS LARGE AS THE BUNYA, NO SAP OR KNOTS TO INJURE THE SPARS secondly mr lang speaks of the araucaria bidwelli or the bunya bunya pine and he again quotes from his friend he writes this tree observes mr petrie grows to an immense height and girth i have measured some ordinary sized trees one hundred and fifty feet high and about four feet in diameter they are as straight and round as a gun barrel the timber grows in a spiral form and would answer admirably for ship's masts of any size that pine bears a great strain traversely one of its superior qualities also there is no sapwood or knots in the barrel the lateral branches being never above two or three inches in diameter and growing from the outer rind of the tree the fruit of this pine is a large cone or core about nine by six inches and covered with small cones similar in appearance to a pineapple. It is these small nuts that the blacks eat they travel two or three hundred miles to feed on the fruit it is plentiful every three years the timber grows in latitude twenty five and twenty six degrees and about sixty miles in longitude it is not known at present to grow anywhere else it grows plentifully in this latitude i was the first person who risked my life with others in procuring the first plants of this tree and Mr. Bidwell was some years after me. Dr. Lang next writes of the Red Cedar, and tells how in the prisoner's time the government had it all cut down to give employment to the convicts, and large quantities went to waste. He then quotes yet again from Mr. Petrie. Ironbark. This tree grows plentifully in the forest, and is suitable for house or shipbuilding, and is a valuable timber. Blue gum. This is another valuable hardwood timber, and is well adapted for all kinds of carpentry work. Box. This timber is very suitable for all agricultural implements, and for many other purposes. Rose or violet wood. This is a valuable timber, and is suitable for gig shafts, etc., being similar to our lance wood at home. The Aborigines make their spears of this wood, and they know the art of straightening them when crooked. Silk oak. This is a very beautiful tree, and the timber is well adapted for the sheathing of vessels and many other useful purposes. Forest oak. Known also by the name of beef wood, suitable for tool handles, bullock yokes, etc. It is used principally for firewood. Tulip wood. This wood is suitable for fancy, cabinet, and turning work. It grows in the scrub. THE TREE APPEARS LIKE A CLUSTER OF GOTHIC COLUMNS. "'There are a great many other species of valuable timber in this district,' observes Mr. Petrie, that I have not described, not having specimens to give you. "'Logwood and Fustic have been procured here. The timber trade will form one of the principal branches of commerce. I also send you a small sample of the native gums. Gums could be procured in this district in considerable quantities.' it is interesting to compare the first opinions formed of the timbers of morton bay with those of the present day mr petrie was correct in his prophecy that the timber trade will form one of the principal branches of commerce we will now follow him in his adventures whilst obtaining specimens of the bunya bunya pine the exact date of his discovery of the tree is not remembered, but several years after he gave a Mr. Bidwell specimens, and that gentleman forwarding them to England, got the credit of the discovery, for the tree was named after him, Araucaria Bidwelli. During an excursion to Maruchi in those early years, Mr. Petrie succeeded in procuring what has been spoken of as the first specimens of bunya pine seen by those in the settlement. From the plants he brought with him, says Mr. Knight, which were obtained at considerable risk owing to the unfriendly attitude of the blacks, may be said to have sprung many of the fine specimens now to be seen about Brisbane and Sydney. On this excursion he was accompanied by his son John, so well known afterwards in Brisbane, two convicts, and two native blacks as guides, Tonbor and Dandawayan. They also had with them a pack bullock, which carried the rations and blankets. Mr. petrick got specimens of different kinds of timber besides the bunya, and years afterwards, when his son Tom travelled with the blacks to their feast of the bunya season, they showed the young fellow where his father had been, between Doolong and Razorback, and the direction he took through the scrub. On the return from this trip, Mr. Petr camped at the foot of the Birwa mountain, for he was anxious to ascend it and take observations from the summit he always carried his instruments with him he tried to get a black fellow to climb also but in vain for the man declared that should such a thing be done the spirit who lived at the top of the mountain would kill him john petrie therefore accompanied his father and they carried with them a bottle of water reaching the top after great difficulty mr petrie took bearings for the assistance of the surveyors who were then commencing a trigonometrical survey and after a good look round and a rest, he wrote his name, with date attached on a slip of paper, and corking this up in the now empty bottle, placed it safely under a rock, and descended to the camp. In after years John Petrie called his house on Gregory Terrace, Birwa. The next person who climbed Birwa was Mr. Burnett, the government surveyor, after whom the Burnett River was named, and he also put his name in the bottle several others have been up since the story of the bottle was told my father by grandfather years after the event when the old gentleman was blind the blacks had a strange idea about that same blindness they declared that the spirit of the mountain had caused it in order that mr petrie would be forever afterwards unable to see his way up again i have already quoted from a book written by mr t archer recollections of a rambling life and now add the following extract which is of interest here before finally squatting in this unpromising land we made some efforts to discover something better by making excursions into the surrounding country i set off on foot one day on one of these search expeditions accompanied by jimmy and a native of the country named jimmy birwa who could speak a little dog english or blackfellow slang "'having been occasionally at the German mission near Brisbane. "'He led us ten or a dozen miles eastward through thickly timbered and very poor country, "'when there appeared ahead of us a huge isolated sugar-loaf mountain, "'presenting an apparently inaccessible wall of bare rock. "'When we reached the foot of it I sat down on a stone, "'thinking our adventures for that day were over.' But Jimmy Birwa continued to advance, making use of some crevices and projections to haul himself upwards, and beckoning to us to follow. Not to disgrace my Norwegian training as a cragsman, I did so, and the other Jimmy brought up the rear, and never have I forgotten the magnificent view that met our gaze when, after half an hour's scramble, we reached the top. Nearly the whole of the Morton Bay district lay spread out beneath us, and about a dozen miles to the eastward of us was the sea, the sea, the open sea, glittering in the sunlight, with Bryby's Island, Morton Island and Morton Bay to the south, and a hundred miles of coast, stretching away to the north. For two years I had not beheld this my favourite element, and was delighted to see it once more. But Jimmy, who had never before seen a sheet of water bigger than Wingate's lagoon, was transfixed with astonishment, and stood staring at it in mute admiration, though he was far too proud to give vent to his feelings by indulging in undignified gestures like his more unsophisticated and barbarous countrymen on their first introduction to a flock of sheep. I had begun the ascent of that mountain, laying the flattering unction to my soul that I was the first white man to accomplish the feat, but when about half-way up I began to notice indications of whites having been before me, in sundry scratches on the rocks that could have been made only by the nailed soles of boots, and what was my disgust? On attaining the pinnacle, to discover a cairn of stones containing a bottle "'in which was a scrap of paper with the names of Andrew Petrie and John Petrie his son, "'and one or two others written on it in pencil. "'This was a mortifying discovery, but one that had to be borne with becoming resignation. "'The name of the mountain was Birwa, "'and it was the highest and most westerly of a cluster of peaked hills, "'scattered irregularly between it and the sea, called the Glass House Mountains.' our guide jimmy birwa had probably that name bestowed on him by mr petrie the government engineer at brisbane for guiding him and his party to the top of the mountain shortly before our arrival jimmy birwa no doubt tried to explain this to us but our ignorance of the morton bay black slang prevented us from understanding him the writer came across mr archer's book after describing mount birwa's ascent by mr andrew petrie It will be seen that the latter climbed with his son, without the assistance of a black fellow, but perchance Jimmy Birwa was the black who refused to climb, on that occasion. This Jimmy Birwa was, my father says, a regular messenger man among the blacks. He carried messages from tribe to tribe by means of the usual notched stick. A messenger could travel anywhere with safety, going unharmed even amongst hostile tribes." Another time my grandfather journeyed from Brisbane to where Caboolture is now, to obtain a block of timber from a bunya pine. This time he had with him the same blackfellows, two or three convicts, and his son John. The first night they camped at North Pine, where the Kippa ring was then, and of course round about was all wild forest, no roads to Caboolture, nor bush tracks even long afterwards when my father went to live at the pine the aborigines showed him just where his father had camped they said he had with him a bullock on which chains were put all same as croppies prisoners so that fellow not ran away the kippa ring at the pine owned the curious native name of nindur nginendo which means a leech sitting down The larger ring was made just where the present road is opposite the blacksmith's shop, and the roadway to the smaller one where the travellers camped ran up behind the shop to the top of the ridge, where, in the paddock behind Marumba, even yet a part of the ring and roadway can be seen. When Mr. Petrie and his companions had reached the Kabulcher River, they had to go up it a little way in order to be able to cross with the pack bullock. The pine they were in quest of stood on the north bank. Arriving at the tree, they started to cut out a piece, and the blacks showed they did not like this at all, complaining that they had piloted the party to see the tree, not to cut it. I have previously mentioned that the Aborigines would not, in the very early days, even cut notches in a bunya pine, and on this occasion they almost cried in their distress, saying the tree would die of its wounds. Mr. Andrew Petrie had to assure them that it would not, and he promised supplies of tobacco. So the deed was done, and after camping that night, the junk of wood was put on the pack-bullock next morning, and eventually Brisbane was safely reached. Mr. Petrie had the block of timber cut up, and some of it polished, to show the grain. Doubtless there are farmers still on the Caboolture River who remember seeing that old bunya tree with a piece cut from it it stood close to where the bridge now crosses the river mr henry stuart russell author of genesis of queensland refers to the bunya tree he says the bunya bunya araucaria bidwele which expresses so much in aboriginal traditions claims a few remark before passing on to wide bay andrew petrie who held the post of foreman of works january eighteen thirty six under the government brisbane was the first white intelligent discoverer of this tree sometimes i think in eighteen thirty eight under the guidance of some blacks he had visited a spot on which it grew took a drawing of it and brought in a sample of the timber the finding of which and his opinion as to its value he at once reported it got the name of pinus petriana deservedly i should have thought but not it seemed in accordance with the manorial rights of red tape Mr. Russell then speaks of meeting, shortly after returning from Wide Bay in 1842, a Mr. Bidwell, an attaché to the Botanical Society in London, in search of bunya plants to send to England. He sent three, two of which Mr. Russell afterwards saw growing there. The latter adds, being reported in this fashion it became known, de rigueur, as the Araucaria Bidwelli, for all time, the true workers— Petris, solid claim was outbid by the less title to fame i can recollect cones of the bunya being sold at covent garden london for ten guineas each yet another extract from mr archer's book they the blacks were quiet and peaceable and not nearly as numerous as at derrandour except in the bunya season when they mustered in large numbers from great distances but then the bunya cones supplied them so amply with food that they were not tempted by hunger to supply themselves with animal food from our flocks i need not describe to you the bunya tree as you have all seen one growing in the Graysmere garden where it thrives though it is not a native of that district the tree when in its native home is confined to a comparatively small space of country beginning about cunningham's gap in the south and extending northward along the main range for about one hundred and fifty miles to the head of the Cuyar creek where a spur branches off from the main range eastwards toward the coast separating the waters of the brisbane from those of the mary river and approaching the coast between the glasshouse mountains and the maroochee river its length being about another one hundred and fifty miles Along this range and all its spurs the bunya flourishes, and supplies, or supplied, the blacks every third year, with ample stores of food from its huge cones, larger than a man's head, and containing kernels as large as an almond. Its botanical name, the Araucaria bidwelli, was given to it because Mr. Bidwell is supposed to be the first white man who brought it into notice. But this is a mistake. The tree was first discovered by Mr. Petrie, the government engineer on his expedition mentioned above, when he ascended Mount Birwa and found the Maruchi River. He, however, was not a scientific botanist, and only reported his discoveries in the colonies, whereas Mr. Bidwell sent the cone to England, and thus got the credit of being the discoverer of the tree. In Mr. Andrew Petrie's diary of his trip to Wide Bay in 1842, to be quoted later, speaking of that part of the world, he says, In this scrub I found a species of pine not known before. It is similar to the New Zealand kauri pine and bears a cone. It forms a valuable timber, etc. This evidently is the pine Agatis robusta, known to the early blacks as Dundardum, Dundardum, the white man has mispronounced it so. Dondazu. An article on Brisbane by an unsigned writer, appearing in the Town and Country Journal some time since, speaks of Mr. Andrew Petrie's discoveries, then adds, He was, in fact, so indefatigable in developing the natural resources of the district and laboring for his welfare that any attempt to write the story of brisbane would be absolutely incomplete without reference to the pioneer andrew petrie and his descendants with regard to his coal discoveries mr j j knight says in several other ways did mr petrie demonstrate the capabilities of the district not the least important being the discovery of coal at tivoli while on a visit to redbank station so impressed was he with the importance of this find that he sent two sample casks to sydney it was tested and pronounced highly satisfactory at the later period it may be mentioned a tunnel was run into the hill and a plentiful supply obtained for the penal establishment it may also be remarked that mr petrie found though some time after the discovery at tivoli the black diamond at red bank and Mogill and mines at these places were in subsequent years worked by the veteran john williams the value of such discoveries was not wholly apparent in those bygone days it is now that the trade has grown to such dimensions and forms so important a part of the commercial worth that we can realize their importance to the full chapter five